ahead and invite you to Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, as we continue our series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. There is a problem that is universally bred and born into humanity, and that is the problem of self-righteousness. We might like to say, oh, it's never been a problem for me, but of course that just reveals that you have a blind spot. This struggle affects every man, woman, and child. It is triggered by our sinful nature. It is cultivated uh, by a world of physicality and performance. Uh, it's fostered in the family, in education, and in sports. The more competitive one is, the more one is apt to struggle with self-righteousness. It's not merely a religious thing. Self-righteousness surfaces in a myriad of ways in the world in which we live. It can take the form of a holier-than-thou religious type who's convinced that their vast knowledge makes them superior to you because you don't know as much, but it can just as easily apply to the atheist or the agnostic who is certain in their intellect and reason that they are superior to the person of faith because they don't need a crutch. It can take the form of a person who has been blessed by so many of life's advantages that they've come to feel entitled as though they deserve it because of who they are, and they're left with little empathy for people who come from a life where they're disadvantaged and they don't have the same opportunities that they've been presented with. It can also take the damaging form of a parent who thinks of nothing of holding an exacting standard of perfection over their kids, even as though they didn't themselves make mistakes or, or step out of line, and that can be terribly damaging for a child. This sort of thing just comes naturally to us. Early on in our lives, when we become aware of deficiencies and shortcomings inside of us or around us, even if we aren't aware that it stems from a sin nature that we, were in, we inherited, we start plotting strategies to compensate for those things working hard to appear as though they're not there uh, in the eyes of other people. We set out to work uh, to prove externally that we are, in the words of that great theologian Stuart Smalley, good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like us. So much of what we do, is that a dated reference to Stuart Smalley? So much of what we do is to convince others that we are better than what we feel or know inside. The struggle is real. And self-righteousness is no respecter of persons. It affects us all. Uh, Anglican pastor J.C. Ryle wrote these words, oh, Let us be aware of self-righteousness. Open sin kills thousands of souls. Self-righteousness kills its ten thousands. Go and study humility with the great apostle of the Gentiles. Go and sit with Paul at the foot of the cross. Give up your secret pride. Cast away your vain ideas of your own goodness. Be thankful if you have grace, but never glory in it for a moment. Work for God and Christ with heart and soul and mind and strength, but never dream for a second of placing confidence in any of your own work. Self-righteousness. It's closely linked with human pride, and therein lies the problem. The greatest danger to our common struggle is that we should be tempted uh, to come to believe in our own efforts. What began as a coping mechanism to come, overcoming insecurities and a sense of inferiority uh, becomes a lethal standard of comparison in which we reinforce our uh, flagging ego, our sense of self-worth by uh, justifying ourselves over others. Let me ask you a few questions. Who do you think you are? How does your uh, perception of who you are, your, your self-awareness, affect your sense of need for God? And for his grace. How does the way you think about yourself affect the way that you view others or think about others? 
We live in a world where we're constantly evaluating ourselves, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. If we're conscientious about how we're living, um, if we're striving to look to God for his grace in, in terms of how to live victoriously, then the Holy Spirit will gently nudge us in how to deal with our sin and our shortcomings, and he will ever point us faithfully down the path of spiritual transformation. But often, the backdrop of our self-evaluation becomes a comparison to others around us. And every one of us is quite practiced and proficient in finding others whose lives and choices make us look uh, exemplary. And with a pat on the back of our self-esteem, we look to God and others around us and say we're just fine. In fact, we're better than fine. And that's where today's passage comes in because it beautifully depicts how God's grace is available to those who know they need it. Uh, And it shows us how critically important it is for us to take our self-righteousness head on and deal with it. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here in these verses, uh, Jesus is going to call another of his disciples. This is the last disciple we're actually going to see called uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and it happens to be Levi. And just as he has done with the brothers, Simon and Andrew and James and John, Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee, and people are coming to him. And what Jesus is doing, the primary thing he said he came to do is preaching and teaching. And it's in this setting that Jesus is going to call Levi. And before we get to who Levi is, I think it's important to note that Jesus meets people where they are in their workaday world, doing life, uh, as mundane and as messy as it might be. That's where Jesus finds people. Listen, it doesn't matter what your station in life is. If you've been found by Jesus or you're going to be found by Jesus, it's going to be in the ordinary warp and woof of your life. And we just have to respond, even if our life is messy even if it seems too mundane for the master. Jesus calls Levi, and just as the brothers uh, did, Levi drops what he's doing. He walks away from his lucrative tax career, and he follows Jesus. Then Jesus follows Levi to his house, uh, where Levi has gathered a bunch of his uh, uh, friends, a questionable cadre of friends, uh, for a celebration. And the religious leaders, who have an eye on Jesus, they're they're watching him. They're going to see this. And they're going to ask this question, why does Jesus eat with people like this? Why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? Now, as I told you last week, we find ourselves in a series of controversies that Mark is calling our attention to. Jesus' popularity is soaring. It's been growing uh, because of his exousia, his power, innate power and authority. And because of this, his, his preaching and his healing and his power over demons and because of this outlandish claim that the Son of Man has the power, the authority to forgive sins and that he is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, Mark is presenting Jesus and his message to us as one that cannot, you cannot remain neutral about. We're being confronted with a choice. 
Whether Jesus is actually Messiah, God incarnate, or he is a liar, a lunatic, another deranged, delusional religious person. And the scribes and the Pharisees, we saw last week, are arriving at the conclusion that Jesus is not only not what or who he claims to be, he's actually a blasphemer. And by the end of this series of controversies, they're going to conclude that Jesus needs to be destroyed. But whatever the religious leaders are thinking, the crowds, the aklos, they remain anxious to find Jesus because he's established himself as a miracle worker. He teaches like no one who's ever taught before. Uh, He does things that no one has ever seen before. And as the crowd presses in on Jesus, he does that thing that he is most zealous to do. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. And that's the scene here. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. He comes to Levi in his tax collector's booth, and Jesus says to Levi, follow me. And it says, Levi arose and followed him. Of note, the word following occurs 19 times in Mark's gospel. And for those of you who are in construction, this is a load-bearing term. Uh, It indicates uh, what it looks like to actually have faith in Jesus. Uh, It's not just a matter uh, of what we say we think or believe. It's actually a matter of acting upon that. And so Levi, like the four disciples before him, is going to follow. Now, we need to ask, who is Levi? And how does his occupation uh, lend to controversy? The passage says that Levi is said to be the son of Alphaeus. From the other Gospels, we're going to discover that this is actually Matthew. And Matthew is going to become the author of one of the other Gospels that we have in our Bible. It's actually in chronological order. It's actually uh, the first in our Bible. Matthew is going to figure prominently uh, as Jesus' disciple. But here, now, he becomes the object of controversy. And that's because of Levi's occupation. Levi is a tax collector. But what does that mean exactly? Levi, a Jew, not a very good one, had bid uh, to win employment as a tax collector on behalf of the Roman government. Essentially, he had become an enemy of his own people. Tax collectors in general were regarded as sharks and traitors. They enriched themselves with the permission of Rome by extorting as much over what Rome required of a tax as they could get. And whatever overage they got, as long as Rome got theirs, they were allowed to keep theirs. For this reason, they were disdained by the Jewish people. In fact, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, these are Jewish writings after uh, the, the writing of Scripture, tax collectors were lumped together with murderers and thieves. They were considered wicked. They were political turncoats. Uh, they were known for their lawlessness and immorality. As a group of people, tax collectors had been excommunicated from the synagogue. They couldn't even go and hear the Scriptures. They couldn't worship God. They were so considered so untrustworthy that their testimony was not allowed in, in uh, court. They were despised and considered ritually unclean. I would suggest that if we were left in charge of choosing the 12 disciples, we would never have chosen someone like Levi. And the fact that Levi is on the edge of the Sea of Galilee means that he's probably collecting taxes on the fishing industry, which means that he's not only probably well-known, but also despised by Simon Andrew, James, and John. Perhaps no one is more shocked at the scandal of Jesus saying to Levi, follow me as the disciples were. Greater still would have been their amazement that Levi would do exactly what they had done. He would drop everything he had. He would walk away from his lucrative business and he would follow Jesus. Of note, Jesus sees potential in Levi. 
Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that Jesus sees innate potential in Levi. What Jesus sees is the radical, transforming, life-altering, God-glorifying potential of grace. No sooner had this interaction transpired than they find themselves gathered in Levi's home for a party, a dinner party. The context implies that Levi had arranged this banquet with all of his friends and Jesus and the disciples to celebrate his call to be a disciple. But who besides Jesus and the disciples would be invited to this party? The text says tax collectors and sinners. Uh, As an outcast, a social pariah, Levi invited the only friends that he had. Other despised and disdained people. We're not talking about the poor or the downtrodden or the meek. We're talking about criminals, thieves, thugs, enforcers, prostitutes. The people at Levi's house are the worst. They are the bottom of society's barrel. And and no respectable, moral, upstanding person would want to be anywhere near this crowd. Yet there Jesus is, reclining at table. There is an eschatological allusion to the banquet of the kingdom. When we celebrate around the table with Christ in the kingdom, what we will see there are the worst of humanity. What we will see there are the people who needed most to be redeemed. This is a picture of what is to come. And here is the conflict between Jesus and the scribes of the Pharisees. Jesus is doing something that no scribe, no Pharisee would ever do. His acceptance of unacceptable people serves uh, the negative purpose of exposing the hostility uh, and the narrow exclusivism of religion in that day. You had to fit the mold in order to be accepted. But at the same time, it also serves the positive purpose of indicating uh, the revolutionary nature of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Things are not going uh, to be the same. We won't judge a book by its cover. It'll come down to the work of Christ. So who were the scribes of the Pharisees? They represented the epitome of uh, legalistic self-righteousness in Jesus' day. Largely because of their influence, the religion of first century Israel had deteriorated into an external works-based system that was preoccupied with with observing rituals uh, and keeping man's traditions. The Pharisees had determined that there were some 613 laws that had to be adhered to in order for us to be upright before God. 613. We don't even handle the 10 commandments. These guys were strict rule keepers. And not only were they preoccupied with their self-righteousness, they were pridefully confident before God that they had accomplished something that others could not or would not do. And they were zealous not to be anywhere or around anyone that would threaten their reputation. For this reason, they asked the disciples, Notice they still don't have the gumption to ask Jesus. Why would Jesus run the risk of eating with tax collectors and sinners? How could Jesus be a godly man, let alone sent by God, if he acted contrary to the Scripture, uh, what the Scripture says about wicked people and how God, uh, has God's attitude toward them? And the controversy here is about purity. They found Jesus' breach of, of both social and religious convention unacceptable. So here's the conflict, and here's where the conflict comes home to us. Now, in order to help you see uh, the powerful message that's in this passage, I want to reenact the scene. So I've asked three people to help me. Would you guys come up? Trace, Caleb, and Trinity. 
Jason, I'm going to have you sit over here. Caleb, you can sit over there behind him. And Trinity, I'll get your chair. You can sit here. Perfect. All right, Trace, you're going to play the part of Jesus. Don't screw this up. And I won't typecast either one of you, roll cast. One of you is a tax collector, and the other embodies the worst of, of sinners, okay? You know, prostitutes, pornographers, politicians, okay? All right, so that's it. Which makes you, which makes you a mixture of the aklos, the crowd, and some of you are scribes of the Pharisees, all right? So here we have Jesus gathered at Levi's house. And the very first thing that we should uh, draw from this passage is that the conflict arises, not just in this scene, but I think for you and I, the conflict arises from our failure to recognize the essential difference between Jesus and us, okay? So the crowd, the scribes of the Pharisees, are looking at Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the mistake that they make is they equate themselves somehow to being righteous like Jesus, to being spiritual like Jesus. So, so they're wondering why would Jesus do something they would never do? Because clearly these are people that you would not want to associate with. The problem is they're comparing themselves to the wrong standard. They're comparing themselves to tax collectors and sinners instead of comparing themselves to Jesus. And there's two things that flow out of this. The first is that human nature, humanity only has a, a false righteousness that tends to ignore our identity. Tracking with me there? Doesn't matter who we are. Anybody at the party outside of Jesus, anybody in the Oculus, we only have a false righteousness uh, that seeks to mask over our true identity. So that means that when we think about the righteousness of of man, uh, two things. One, it's external. So the problem that the the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the, the problem that religious leaders of the day had was that they were focused on the exterior, They were going through all these motions to appear as though they were something they weren't. This is the core of self-righteousness. We're just as guilty as they are. Everything we do is intended to make something more of us than we are inside. And so the crowd, the, the scribes of the Pharisees, they're looking at this party where Jesus is with these sinful people and they're saying, we're better than they are. Not only that, we're better than Jesus is. Look at all the things that we've done not to defile ourselves. It's all external. In fact, if you think about God's rejection of Saul and his calling of David, what God says to Samuel is, the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The only thing that you and I can do is to work on the exterior of our lives. And that's not where the problem lies. The problem lies deep within us. Not only is our false righteousness external, it's also contrived. That means it's artificial. It's something that we have to labor at. And so God says to his people in Isaiah 29, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is simply a commandment taught by men. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Our identity is depravity. Our identity is depravity. See, the the crowd, the, the scribes of the Pharisees, they thought that their identity was wrapped up in all these things they had accomplished by their hard work. 
But lying deep within all of that veneer is a darkened heart, a heart that's dead, a heart that is lost to God. There's really no difference between anyone in the crowd, any of the scribes of the Pharisees, and anyone that was at Jesus' table, anyone that was at Levi's house. We all have the same problem. We're born with a, a, a depraved nature because of our first father, Adam. The first father who rejected God and sinned against him has passed down to us something we're born with innately. It's a darkened, dead heart. And so if religion, if all that religion does is invite us to like, try to fix up the exterior, we're just deceiving ourselves. We only have a false righteousness. And that false righteousness tends to want to ignore our depravity, our sinfulness. And this is why... The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, none are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Isaiah chapter 64 says that our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. And you say, wait, I'm capable of, of doing some good. And I'd say, yeah, absolutely you are. You are created in the image of God, and you have the capacity for achieving good. But I would liken our good to the blind squirrel that occasionally gets the nut. It's something we have the, uh, these flashes of, of opportunity and potential for, but by and large, our problem is a darkened heart. And we make the mistake of pointing to tax collectors and sinners because the standard isn't the failings of someone else. The standard is God's righteousness. The mistake that the, the scribes of the Pharisees made is they compared themselves to the wrong person. They were comparing themselves to the wrong people. Jesus is the standard of comparison. And like the scribes of the Pharisees, we make the mistake of comparing ourselves to the wrong standard, which leads which tends to lead to us thinking higher of ourselves than we ought. Humanity possesses only a false righteousness. It's one that ignores our identity. By contrast, Jesus possesses true righteousness that is innate. That's a recurring term. Innate to his identity. Jesus' identity, as Mark has been laying out, is that of God. So Hebrews chapter 1 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is other than the scribes of the Pharisees. He's other than the crowd. He's other than everyone that was at Levi's house. He possesses a righteousness in and of himself. Jesus' righteousness is unassailable. That means it's unquestionable. See, the, the scribes of the Pharisees, the mistake they made was they ran too quickly to blasphemy instead of considering that maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Instead, they thought to question his righteousness. But in the end, they're going to find out that he, his righteousness is unassailable. It cannot be questioned. This is why he's going to be vindicated after he is allowed uh, himself to be crucified on the cross. God is going to vindicate him three days because his righteousness is unassailable. Second, his righteousness is unattainable. You see, it doesn't matter how hard you try, what your religious efforts, it doesn't matter how many people you compare yourself to, you will never attain in and of yourself to the righteous standard of God. The only way that you and I can get there is for God to enable us to have a path to achieve, which is Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. 
Third, not only is he, his righteousness unassailable and unattainable, it is also unstainable. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because he can walk into any setting and not be defiled. He can walk into your life with all of its messes, and he's not worried for a moment about you staining him. His, his righteousness is unstainable. And so he comes to do for us what only he can do. Paul, speaking to Timothy, says of Jesus, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light. This is precisely why the conflict is mounting and the tension is rising. Precisely because of the exousia of Jesus, his innate power and authority. Jesus is asserting that he is God. And though perhaps in retrospect, as we see the Old Testament, they should have recognized him. The truth is, they didn't have a category for that. They failed to see the otherness of Jesus. That is, the scribes of the Pharisees and most of the crowd. You know who did recognize who he was? The people at the party. Levi recognized who Jesus was. He recognized uh, an end of himself, that all he had ever been able to produce was someone who was greedy, someone who could extort, someone who could enrich himself, someone who was just about him. And that's why when Jesus says, I have authority to forgive sins, uh, the crowd, the, the scribes of the Pharisees reacted in their hearts with accusations of blasphemy because only God possesses the authority, the righteousness to offer forgiveness and redemption to the repentant. What is striking about this story is that Jesus doesn't require repentance in advance of having table fellowship with Jesus. You see, the scribes of the Pharisees not only wouldn't go to dinner with tax collectors and sinners, they had written them off. They weren't allowed to come to the synagogue. They were too dirty. They were beyond repair. So they wouldn't have anything to do with them. And Jesus is willing to have dinner with them without condition. They don't even have to repent. He loves them that much. He would fellowship with them. He's not worried about tainting himself. In the process of that, he's hoping that they'll come to see their need for him and turn. But there is no precondition to have fellowship with Jesus. And that should be a lesson to Christ followers, that we're called in the spirit of Jesus to seek and to save that which is lost. We're called to be around what we once were tax collectors, and sinners. Jesus has come to bring hope to a class of hated and helpless people. And most of them, the crowd, the aklos, the scribes of the Pharisees, they missed it. Job chapter 37 says, The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant in righteousness that He will not violate. Therefore men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Jesus came to reveal righteousness and to make it available by grace. And this is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from works, apart from all that you can do to impress other people and to prove yourself to God. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you see the great irony in this passage? 
the insiders, the ones who'd been gaming the systems, the one who had the upper hand, the one who could kind of hold society under their thumb, the insiders had become the outsiders. And the outsiders, the ones who had been written off because of their sin, because they couldn't do anything to change themselves. In fact, they were tired of even trying. The outsiders have become insiders. Why? Why? Why would Jesus have uh, dinner? Why would he fellowship with tax collectors and sinners? Well, the contrast between those who are received by Jesus and those who reject Jesus comes down to the matter of self-awareness. You know who gets to party with Jesus? It's people who see themselves for who they really are. It's not people who are putting on airs. It's not the crowd, not the scribes or the Pharisees. Yeah, they're impressive. They're impressive of all the things they've accomplished, but all of their accomplishments only point to themselves. It's the people who come to an end of themselves, who know, yeah, I, I am what you say I am. I, I'm, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a tax collector. I'm a thief. I'm a thug. I'm a prostitute. I'm a pornographer. Whatever it looks like for that person to realize that the most they can make of their life is someone who has become the object of God's wrath. And they're willing to turn from that, own it, and turn from that. That's the person who is welcome at the table with Jesus. Listen, we can protest all we want, but the vilest of sinners who comes to know who they really are, how impossible it is for them to try and change a dead heart, and is willing to turn in repentance and faith, will find in Jesus a Savior who sympathizes with their weakness and will save them to the uttermost. This is why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, just as Jesus' assertion that he has the power to forgive sins was shocking uh, to those around, so was his response when he heard their question. Why would you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responded, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This theme will not be explicit in the remainder of Mark, but it's made so abundantly clear here that the reader is to bear it in mind as we move forward. Jesus gives a proverb, and he reissues his purpose. The proverb illustrates uh, Jesus' compassion, the compassionate nature of his ministry towards sinners. He hasn't come to drop the hammer. That's what the scribes of the Pharisees wanted. That, that's the way they lived. They were willing to write off people simply uh, because of their sinfulness, Overlooking their own all the while. Jesus is not that way. He's come to show compassion to people who are bound up in their sin. But then he reiterates his purpose. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. And in case you missed it, that's kind of a double-edged coin. On the one hand, he's commending them for their hard work. You've, you've really outdone yourself to make something of what you are. But at the same time, he's pointing them to the fact that their righteousness is no righteousness at all. It has not changed their hearts. He came to call sinners. He came to be the great physician to people who were sick and in need. His grace extends to and it overcomes the worst of human depravity. Jesus defends the company he keeps on the grounds of people's spiritual needs which he came to meet. He is not ashamed of you. He is not afraid of you. You can't do anything to stain his righteousness. He would just love you to the Father if only you will see yourself and your great need of him. This is all that he requires. What an incredible contrast between 
six sinners, and a self-righteous crowd. Matthew knew who he was. He didn't need anybody to tell him. I mean, he had lived with the, the jeers and the looks and the hatred. When someone saw potential in him, when Jesus saw potential in him and said, follow me, it, Matthew thought nothing of walking away from a lucrative business. He knew that all he was was a greedy, self-serving sinner. But this man had changed his life, and so he followed. And all of his friends, outcast in their own right, gathered to meet this Jesus who could call Matthew away from a lucrative business. And the, script, the passage says that many people like that follow Jesus. Is there any wonder? If we passed a mic around the room, uh, we would hear testimony after testimony of people who would talk about how Jesus rescued them from where they were. That he put a finger on their hearts and showed them how broken they were and that there was nothing they could do to change themselves. Listen, friends, self-righteousness and the game of religion, uh, is, it, it will just damn you. There is nothing to it. We are all in the same boat. I know we look the part. Not as much as the church I grew up in. I'm wearing jeans, but we look the part. But the truth is, beneath the veneer of our lives, we're all in the same boat. We stand at level ground at the foot of the cross. We desperately need what Jesus did for us, and he's not asking us to clean ourselves up. He's not asking us to work hard to prove ourselves better than other people. He's asking us to be honest about who we are and how much we need him, to turn from our self-righteousness and to embrace his righteousness. This is the offer of the gospel. This is why Jesus came, not to call righteous, but to call the sick to him. And the tragedy is that the scribes and the Pharisees, all they really wanted to do was maintenance the status quo. Why? Because they were at the top of the heap. They were on top of the pile. They didn't want to change anything, but that religion is hopeless. Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom, to purchase forgiveness, and to create a community of the forgiven. And the difference is grace. Abandon your self-righteousness. Jesus did not come into this world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that means if we are to have what Jesus is offering, we have to recklessly abandon who we are. We have to own it and then give it to him. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, we are apt to think somehow that we are better than others. Yet in truth, every single one of us is just as capable of what Levi did and then some. We are guilty apart from the rescuing, transforming grace of God. Our only hope is grace. Grace, grace, and grace is only available in Jesus. This is why he came. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know who gets to party with Jesus? It's people who are willing to acknowledge they need him. It's taking a seat at the table for a pastor who struggled with pornography, who thought nothing of, of misusing and abusing other people's daughters, if only visually, for his own satisfaction. It's someone who struggled with uh, the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It, it's, it's someone who's willing to say, all that I am, all of my sin, past, 
present and future. I'll give to you. And in exchange, 2 Corinthians says, he takes it all, and then all that he is, and all of his righteousness, past, present, and future, becomes imputed to me. And God can take a wretch, and he can make him a son, and make him a daughter. And he can knit his heart to a woman, one woman, and he can produce a lifetime of faithfulness to her. It's not because of me. It's nothing I accomplished on my own. It's because I was willing to abandon people thinking that I was something I'm not. Paul says that the, the great exchange is for God to take all that you are, all of your sin, past, present, and future, and impute it to Jesus. In exchange, we get all that Jesus is, all of his righteousness, past, present, and future, imputed to us. This is what it means to sit at the table with Jesus. Would you sit at the table with Jesus? You'll have to abandon yourself. You'll have to acknowledge who you are. You'll, stop, you'll have to stop running a scam that you're happy to let other people think you're a good guy. She's a great girl. They're so accomplished. They've worked so hard. They've achieved so much. Now, those who sit at the table with Jesus, those who party with Jesus, are people who are content to say, anything good about my life accrues to his glory. Anything worthwhile in me is because of Jesus. And not only does that attest to the sincerity of our relationship with Christ, but it also points people to the answer for their own lives. You know what the problem with church is? We spent so many decades, I grew up this church, fixing up the exterior, looking the part, acting like we had it all together. All we did was blind people from seeing Jesus. Listen, what people most need to know about you is that you're a sinner saved by grace. That they can identify with. <clears throat> we bring nothing to the moment but deep, abiding, personal need. This is the heart of the gospel. And the minute that you and I... Uh, start to think of ourselves as greater, the minute you and I start banking on our own goodness, we're also holding on to our badness, and we are in trouble. The only thing that offers us hope, the very thing that offers the world around us hope, is that we would make much of Jesus, that we would say like the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law and hard work and higher education and living in the right place and making the right income, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness of God that depends on faith, not works. So which one are you most like? 
one of the party goers or one of the Pharisees? You recognize the fundamental difference between Jesus and you. Have you come to the realization that nothing about you will justify you before God? That the only hope you have, the ace in the hole, the wild card, is to say, Jesus is my Lord. Do you understand that apart from Jesus, every one of us are in the same boat? Listen, I, I don't mind acknowledging some of you have accomplished way more than I have. Whatever those things are, you're accomplished. That's commendable. I hope you give glory to Christ for it. I hope that you're faithful to point to Jesus as the reason why you are who you are. That every good and perfect gift has come to you from the Father. And yeah, you've worked hard, but even that, your work ethic, your ability, even that was from God. There's not a person in this room who is less than in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter what they haven't accomplished. It doesn't matter what they struggle with. There's room at the table. Jesus is calling. Have you come to the place where you recognize that the goal of the Christian life isn't for you to look impressive, it's to make much of Jesus? And the best way for that to happen is for us to be honest about our testimony. What do others see in you? Is their first inclination uh, to say, man, he is, he's a, he's a hardworking guy. He's accomplished so much. He's so successful. She's a phenomenal person. She's just a great wife, and she's an exceptional mother, and then she's industrious even outside of that. If we're content to allow people to think much of us, then we haven't done a good job of living the gospel. We should be quick for people to recognize that it is God who gets the glory over our story. Think about this. If Jesus didn't eat with sinners, he'd always be eating alone. Because at this moment, in this story, there are only two kinds of people in the house, Jesus and sinners. That is the utter irrationality of the scribe's position that they would think so highly of themselves as to remain at arm's length, worse than that, a lifetime away from the one who has the power to change them. God is not asking us to fix ourselves. He's asking us to honor sin. There's, there's really only three categories of sinners. There's the sinner who doesn't know they're a sinner simply because they don't have a category for it and no one's ever told them. There's the sinner who's self-righteous. He uh, is arrogant and prideful and refuses to acknowledge his sin. And then there's the sinner like the ones at Levi's house who've come to an end of themselves. They know who they are. Jesus doesn't even have to press the point. They're ready to yield and have their sin imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to them. In the end, what will matter most is not what you've made of yourself but whether or not God has made something of you in Jesus according to the transforming grace of the righteousness of Christ. Which is precisely why Jeremiah exhorts us, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts 
boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God, help us to have a biblically accurate view of ourselves. Not a view of ourselves that causes us to beat ourselves up, because friend, if you're still beating yourself up, you're still holding on to your own self-righteousness. You're still trying to arrive at an independent righteousness from God. May God fill us with a profound sense of need that causes us to run to the cross where we find forgiveness and we worship a Redeemer who has extended grace and righteousness to us. May we find Jesus, the Jesus who receives sinners, just like me. You say, ah, oh, well, you're a pastor. Follow me around long enough. Some of you already know. We're all in the same boat. All that we have, the only hope that we have to hold to is the righteousness of Christ and the hope that he is making me a new creation in him. Have you come to the table? Are you comfortable being associated with the dregs of human society? Listen, by comparison to Christ, there is no winning class of humanity. We're all losers apart from him. But he's inviting us to come. We just have to be willing to sit with everyone else that he wants to redeem. Some of the worst of the worst. And that includes you. Let's pray. Lord, we would confess our utter need for your grace. That we have nothing in and of ourselves that could achieve acceptance with you. We have no ability to move toward you and no ability to live in a way that would please you. Our only hope is your grace. And yet, having said that, we also confess that self-righteousness is still a clear and present danger for us. We don't think that we're bad company. We have a tendency to believe in our goodness by contrast to others. It's pride, Lord. We ask you to strip it from us. We pray that you would rescue us from that self-righteousness that crushes a seeking and a celebration of grace and a magnification of Jesus Christ and him alone. And may, may we, in the harmony of sorrow for sin and a celebration for salvation, may we run again and again and again to the cross of Jesus Christ and find grace there to meet us in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Trace is not really Jesus, but he's been redeemed by him, and I praise God for that. And Caleb and Trinity are not tax collectors, but they are sinners, and Jesus has redeemed them. And I appreciate their help this morning. And you are the crowd. Some of you are Pharisees. But Jesus is offering you the chance to set that aside and come to the table. There will come a day when we will gather in the kingdom of God around a banquet table. I can't even imagine in my mind's eye the size of that room. But we'll all see Jesus. He'll be clear as day. And as we sit there, we'll just all be amazed that God could love a wretch like me. He could change me. He could take a heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. 
make me love people that, that are not family, that were formerly strangers. This is what God is doing in this world. This is why the gospel in the church that's living it out is the hope of the world. This is what we're called to be. Let us represent well what it means to gather around the table as tax collectors and sinners. We're sinners before we're saints. Let's faithfully show the world that Jesus is the toast of the party. That Jesus is actually the one hosting the party. And because of him, because of his grace and his righteousness, we will spend eternity with our creator. Would you stand with me? Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept silent or secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.